Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. that our sins might be cleansed and purified, Lord, and that we stand before you forgiven. What a glorious thing. God, I'm so grateful that we can gather here in this place today, Lord. What a joy it is to come under the banner of your love, Lord, and to be with like-minded individuals. Father, I'm so grateful for Church 860 and the ministry that we have here, Lord. And our, our desire is that we would impact this community for your kingdom and for your glory, God. That we would be instruments in your hand, uh, spreading the gospel, Lord, that people might come to the saving grace of you, that people might come to experience what we've experienced, Lord, that you are mighty to save. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray a blessing over this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are in the book of Zephaniah. You'll see it's about three chapters long. We are going to cruise through it, so you want to buckle up and... Uh, get uh, ready to move quickly. I think I have 14 pages of notes, which is about twice what I normally have. So, hey, may we grab the slide the lights up while you walk by? Thank you. So, have you, who's read the book of Zephaniah before? Good, very good, very good. Some of us, not yet, maybe. This is, a, this is a day that if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you may want to grab one either from the table over there or pull it up on your version app just because there's a lot of reading. Uh, involved in today, uh, and so it's, in order to follow along, it's best to kind of lay eyes on it and listen to it. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, would just encourage you to do that. The theme of the book of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord, which fits with where we kind of left off in Second Peter last week. I mean, he, he Peter was pointing us toward the coming day of the Lord and looking forward to that day when the Lord is going to return. Knowing that when he comes, he's bringing judgment. Uh, and that's a difficult thing for the world to swallow. Uh, we talked about the scoffers. Remember the scoffers of last week? Oh, things haven't changed. For as long as we've been around here, the, the, you know, everything's the same as it was when we were, when our grandpappy was running the hills. Everything's the same, whatever. Nothing's changed. God's never going to, who is this God and is he ever going to return? But the day is coming. In fact, the, the theme, the day of the Lord for the book of Zephaniah, it's repeated seven times throughout the book in just three chapters. Zephaniah was the last of the prophets to use this phrase. And Zephaniah, as he is prophesying, is specifically referring to the coming day of the Lord in the lifetime of Zephaniah. Babylon was on the rise as far as empires go, and God was going to use the Babylonian Empire as an instrument of his judgment on the nation of Israel, on the nation of Judah, because they had wandered away from God. It's looking at the day of the Lord in the judgment of King Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, on Judah, on Jerusalem. But one thing, when we're reading about prophecy, we need to keep in mind, while it was specifically referring to that time, it's also referring to the 
coming day of the Lord, the day that you and I are waiting for, the day of Christ returning for his church, and then the seven-year tribulation period known as the day of the Lord, where God pours out his wrath upon the earth. The name Zephaniah means Jehovah hides. Jehovah hides. God hides. Jehovah, or uh, I guess you could look at it in the sense of Jehovah protects us. It's, uh, and, and so there's actually a, a play on his name here in, in the text. He's going to tell us in verse 1 that it's given during the days of Josiah. Josiah was a good king. He was trying to reform. And in fact, Josiah had given his life to God at a very young age, somewhere around 16. And his life was radically transformed. And because of that, they got the law out again. They were reading the law and they were reforming the nation, trying to draw the, the people back to God. And what the issue was, is everybody was faking it. Everybody was just playing church. They had the outward appearance of being godly, but inwardly their hearts were far from them, from God. And God knew, knows that. God knows our heart. He sees our heart. We can't, we can't trick God when it comes to that. He knows whether or not we're worshiping him in spirit and in truth when we come to worship him. He knows if we're, we're just mailing the check-in or if we're actually engaged in the worship of God. And so because of that, they had made improvements. They had made uh, uh, some reformation, but it wasn't genuine revival. Revival wasn't in the hearts of the people. Their hearts were still far from them. So it was good what Josiah was doing, but it wasn't complete. And God is going to take issue with that. Let's read. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. You with me? Yes. yes. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. It's interesting to note, Zephaniah gives his lineage back four generations. He's the only prophet to do that. Some of the other prophets give maybe two generations back, or I think there's one that gives three generations back. But Zephaniah specifically goes back four generations, and it's because of that name, Hezekiah. It's referring to his lineage to King Hezekiah. And I think that's the reason he wanted to do this, is because he wanted to show that, hey, as uh, as a prophet of God, I have a lineage that's royal. And perhaps that'll give Zephaniah a little more clout, a little more leverage in the days of Josiah. Hey, Josiah, I'm related. In fact, Josiah, with the way the, the lineage went, Josiah would have been, I think it's a third cousin of Zephaniah, with the way the lineage goes. Josiah, a, a descendant of King Hezekiah, would be the third cousin of Zephaniah. And so, hey, cuz, <laughs> I, need to, I need to speak some truth into your life here for a minute. So take a listen to what I have to say. So just as far as our timeline goes, Zephaniah was on the same timeline as the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Zephaniah, both prophets at the same time. 
speaking the same message, think of it as two different news channels broadcasting the same story. If we were to break the book up, it would be broken up into three portions. Conveniently, we have three chapters, so it kind of works out, although the breaks aren't exactly at the chapters. Chapter 1 talks about the judgment of God's people. So it's going to look specifically at the judgment of Judah, of the judgment of Jerusalem. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, through part of chapter 3, we're going to see the judgment of the surrounding nations. So first we see the judgment of God's people, Judah, Jerusalem, and then we see the judgment of the surrounding nations. That kind of fits what we read in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it fits that format. We're looking at Judah and Jerusalem first, and then we'll also look at the judgment on the nations surrounding Jerusalem. And then the rest of chapter 3 would be the restoration of God's people and a picture of the kingdom that is to come. So the judgment of God's people, the judgment of the surrounding nations, and then the restoration and a picture of the kingdom. Verse 2 kind of tells us where we're at. I think it's a, it's a, it's a wake-up call. Look at verse 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. That tells you where we're at. That kind of levi, le, le, leverages or levi, levies the, that's the word I'm looking for, I think, levels, levels, <laughs> Lord help me um, the kind of playing field it tells us where we're at I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land God is frustrated God is upset with the idolatry of the land verse 3 I will consume man and beast in case we didn't understand what everything meant in verse 2 he Delineates. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. In other words, I'm flushing it. <laughs> it's all going down. And, and we can look at that and go, okay, God, what did the animals have to do with this? Why, why specifically are you leveling judgment against the man, man understandably, but why beasts? Why the birds of the heaven? What did they have to do with the judgment? Why, why are they receiving the judgment? You need to remember that there's collateral damage to sin. There are the innocents that fall because of our sin. And, and because man fell in the garden, all of creation was cursed, not just man. And so he has to start over. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan and with the pagan priests. So the issue was the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were worshiping false gods. Specifically, he lists here Baal. We see, we've seen in and out of the history of Judah, uh, this worship of Baal come in. Uh, the god of knowledge, I believe it was. And, uh, and so there was this strange worship. God wants to free the nation of idolatry. 
God wants to get rid of idolatrous worship. When we know the history, we know that the the uh, Israelites, Judah, they are taken captive to Babylon for a period of 70 years. God gives the land its due rest, a 70-year period. And when they return from captivity, pagan worship isn't an issue any longer. God accomplishes exactly what he wants to do. He gets rid of the idolatrous worship. It's interesting in verse 4 there, it says, The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests... I think if you read it in the King James Version, it gives this word uh, chemerims, something along those lines. It was referring to the black robes and black hats that these false god or false priests would worship or would wear uh, in their in their idolatrous worship. And so it's referring to these idolatrous priests, and he's like, I'm gonna get rid of them as well. Those who worship the host of heaven and on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. This is a reference to the practice of astrology. Uh, the word, the, the name there, Milcom, could also be translated Molech. We're familiar with the god of Molech and some of the uh, pagan practices that were involved with worshiping him. And what the issue, the issue that God has in verse 5 is, he says, those who worship and swear by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. So they've blended these faiths, they've you know, brought these two things together, and God's like, no, we're not going to have it that way. Remember what Elijah the prophet said to the prophets of Baal on the mountain? Or he said to the people when he had the 450 prophets of Baal on the mountain? Right? Elijah shouts to the people, hey, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? You know, if Baal's God, then follow him. If Jehovah's God, then follow him. God is a jealous God, and he wants that our worship would be of him and of him alone. <clears throat> and so he says, we can't have this blended worship here. Those, verse 6, who have turned back from the following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. So, in these verses, God addresses three types of people. Those who would worship false gods outright, right? They have, the, they have their own priests the, in the black robes. Those who would blend faith in God with the idolatry of the world. And the third type is verse 6, those who would have nothing to do with God whatsoever. So the question is, do we see those three groups today? Do we have groups that worship false gods? Certainly. Do we have groups that try to blend a faith in the genuine God and other ways of the world? Yeah. A lot of the church is that way today, sadly. And then do we have out-and-out -out atheists? Yeah. There are those that would proclaim to be atheists. So we see those same types of people today. Verse 7, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has invited his guests. So now Zephaniah is going to draw some imagery that the people of Israel would be familiar with. He says, let's look at the sacrifices. You know, the, you know how things are laid out as far as the sacrifices go. And then he's giving them a graphic picture of the day of sacrifice. It says the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, something they would be very familiar with. However, 
This time the sacrifice is them. <laughs> the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, Jerusalem. It's them that are on the altar being prepared to be sacrificed. And Nebuchadnezzar is the instrument in which God is going to use for this sacrifice, for the judgment to be levied. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. I, what's, what's dress got to do with it, God? Why does he say that? Well, it's... In the King James, I think it's translated strange apparel. And I think what, the way you and I would say that today is when the church looks like the world, it's got an issue. That's strange. We are called to be aliens and sojourners. We are called to be foreigners in this world. This world is not our home. So our look shouldn't be that of the world. Not specifically our clothing. It's okay to, you know, dress nicely, hipster. Although the man bun thing's got to go, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just jealous because I can't grow it. So, <clears throat> But we shouldn't be looking like the world. I'll never forget an image that God showed me when we were visiting Ethiopia, um, visiting Kindu. Ethiopia, very poor country, as you all know. Um, the majority of the roads are dirt roads. And so what you would see a lot of times is if somebody had a shop, very first thing when they before they opened, they were had a broom out and they were dusting off the steps of the shop and trying to clean off and, and make things look right. And so I have in my mind and this imagery of some specific shops in Ethiopia of Little women, you know, dusting these things, these things off. But what was interesting about it is the shops were lingerie shops, and the these women would be putting out their very, you know, skimpy clothing, hanging it out on the dirt streets for everybody to come by and look at, because Ethiopian people had bought into the idea that. Hip culture was the way things go. And it looked completely out of place. It, it made no sense to me. That's kind of the image I get of Christians trying to fit into the world's mold. It looks completely out of place. It made no sense to me. Uh, they, they, they would have these boutiques of designer jeans, you know, hanging there, selling for in their culture, gobs of money. People were sweeping the dirt off of, un, from underneath them. They were sitting in the dirt trying to sell, you know, ears of corn just to make enough money to have food that day. But yet they were selling these designer jeans because they had bought into the American culture. It was completely out of place. And that's what I think he's saying here, those that are clothed in foreign apparel. When we as godly people should, should not be looking like the world. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. Um, I don't know why jumping over a threshold would be worth punishment, but evidently that's the case. Who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Certainly we can see that issue 
Actually, I think in the worship of Dagon, they had a, a superstition that you couldn't step on the threshold uh, because of the story of Dagon and the way that he fell. So they, they had a superstition that uh, you couldn't step on the threshold as you walked through a door. And so they would jump over it. So he's saying, that's, that's not right. That's not how we're living. Um, and there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate. This is interesting to me. A mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. You say, okay, what's interesting about that? Well, just a little bit of research, a little bit of study of the history, the, the way that Zephaniah lays these things out, a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and wailing from Maktesh gives the way Nebuchadnezzar came into the city. This is a prophecy of how Babylon was going to raid. And it was given before Babylon came into the city. And it's actually very accurate to the way that he came in. It's a fairly remarkable prophecy of the entrance of Nebuchadnezzar into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was protected well on three sides, the east, the west, and the south. If a, a, an invading army were going to come in, it would be on the north side. They were somewhat accessible from the north side. Well, the north side was the fish gate. That's where the fish gate was, and so that's the way Nebuchadnezzar came in. As he came into the city, the second quarter is where the wealthy people of the city lived, and it was just beyond the fish gate. And so... As they went through, of course, God, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar raided everybody, and the wealthy people didn't survive that either. And so there was wailing in the wealthy area of the second quarter. And the third area that he mentions, Maktesh, or could be translated uh, Mordar, um, that's where the merchants were located. And it says there, for all the merchant people are cut down. So he comes in the north gate, the fish gate, he goes through the second quarter, the wealthy area, and finishes in the merchant area where they're selling all the wares and destroys all of that as well in Maktesh. Very accurate prophecy. And it shall come to pass at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. We heard that in 2 Peter, the same thing. Where is this Lord? He, he's not involved in our life. You know, God's far away. Therefore, their goods shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Everything will come, be brought to the light. God is going to search Jerusalem with the lamps. Nebuchadnezzar, as he went into the city, People would scatter, and they would. a lot of them would hide in the city tunnels. And so he actually took lamps into the city candles, into the city tunnels, and flushed everybody out that chose to hide there. Um, the, everything, that's brought, or everything will be brought to light is what God is saying. Um, see the phrase in verse 12, who are settled in complacency? We can... We can tend to fall into that trap. 
we can get comfortable with the way things are and and be okay with being complacent and not continuing to press forward in the Lord. Um, I studied this this week first in the King James, and I love the way the King James says it. It, In the New King James, it's translated settled in complacency. In the King James, it says settled on the lees. L-E-E-S, settled on the leaves. I didn't know what that meant. But as, as I studied it, what it is is winemakers in those days would transfer the wine from jar to jar at certain very specific times in order to purify the wine. As wine sat in a jar, the, the um, what's it called? What? Sediment. Sediment would settle down to the bottom. And then they would pour that, pour it off and leave the sediment in the bottom. That was also known as the lees. The, the settlement where sediment was the, was the lees. And so they would transfer it up to seven times at very specific times in order to purify it, in order to keep the wine from turning sour. If, a wine, if wine sat on the sediment too long, it would turn it sour. And so they would transfer it. Uh, And and what God is saying is, I want to keep you from settling on the leaves. I want to keep you from turning sour, from becoming complacent. The people who had settled on their leaves had become sour men against God. So think of it this way. You ever felt like your life is turning completely upside down? Like, Lord, I was pretty happy with the way things were going. Everything was pretty smooth. And he's like, yeah, you were settling on your lease, so I poured you out. (laughs) So don't get upset when your life is turned upside down because what God is doing is keeping us from getting sour. He's not letting us settle on the lease. Keeps us from becoming bitter. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, uh, there the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess. We're painting a pretty picture here, aren't we? A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. We need to remember, as we're studying this, God, we're looking at both the near judgment, Babylon coming in and wiping out the nation, and also the far judgment, the great tribulation, which we are looking toward now. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither... Their silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Mm. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Their money won't save them. How many people can just write a check to get out of it, right? They, they, oh, we'll fix this with money. Well, not in that day. And in fact, if you read the book of Revelation, 
there's a point in the Great Tribulation in which wheat becomes more valuable than silver and gold. Why? Because you can't eat money. And God's like, you, you, your silver, your gold isn't going to help you at all. So, that day is coming. There was no chapter break as he wrote this. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Hear God? As he's, as he's issuing this judgment that's going to come, what does he say? Well, before this decree is issued, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger, three times he uses the word before. This is a warning that Zephaniah is giving us. See it as God's grace. Hey, before this happens, you have a way to make it right. Don't let it happen. Seek the Lord. All you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do these things and you may be spared. You may be taken care of. The steps, I'm sorry, the first step of revival is repentance. We mentioned that a couple weeks ago. I want to hold on to that phrase. We want to see revival break out in the city of Westerville. The first step that you and I need to take is genuine, godly repentance. That we would humble ourselves before God. That's what he's saying here. Before I level the day of judgment, you have an opportunity to come to repentance. See it as God's grace that he would give us a warning that these things were going to come. You and I could go out on the streets today with the sandwich board and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord's return is very near. And what are most people going to do? They're going to scoff. God wants to give warning. He issues a warning and he says, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Remember what Zephaniah means? God hides. Jehovah hides. It may be that you'll be hidden. Do you know that anytime we read I'm fairly confident of this. I didn't do the exhaustive research. But any time that we read of God leveling judgment upon the earth, he provides an invitation for protection prior to the execution of that judgment. God provides an invitation for protection prior to the execution of his judgment every time we read it in history or in the, in the Bible. Noah. Before the world gets flushed, he gives the opportunity for people to come to repentance. When they don't, he provides protection for Noah by getting him in the boat. We see here, there's an opportunity. He says, you do these things. You seek the Lord. You seek righteousness. You seek humility. And, and I, it may be that I will hide you from this, this thing that comes. There's an invitation for protection. The coming judgment, the, the, the great tribulation that is coming, what, what protection do we have? Give your life to Christ now. Repent, and then you'll be raptured with the church. You'll be taken out of that judgment. You'll be hidden. And then even in the midst of the great tribulation, for those that wake up and realize that Jesus was in fact the Messiah that they had been looking for all along, there is in Revelation chapter 12, I believe, the story of Petra, the great city of the rock. 
where over in the Middle East, over in the Middle East, near it's in Jordan now, there is this city hewn out of the rock where roughly one million people can live. And it says that the God's people will swarm there in the Great Tribulation, and God will place his hand over them and protect them in that city. So even in the midst of the Great Tribulation, there's an invitation to be protected from that which is going to come. So now at verse 4, he turns toward the other nations, and from verse 4 down to verse 15, he's going to level his judgment against the surrounding nations. From verse 4 to 7, he's going to look to the east and the Philistines. <clears throat> from 8 to 11, he's looking at Moab to the west. In verse 12, he looks at Ethiopia to the south. And verses 13, 14, and 15, he looks at Assyria to the north. We'll just read for a little bit. For Gaza, this is the Philistine nations, for Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday and Ekron will be uprooted. Those were four of the five major cities of the Philistines. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will destroy you so there'll be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the house of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. And in 8 through 11, we're going to look at Moab. I've heard the reproach of Moab. This is to the west, and the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. God is jealous for his people and will protect them, even when he's correcting them. And so if anybody had a beef against the nation of Israel, God's like, I'll take care of you eventually too. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, verse 9, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah. We know how that went, right? Overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them, and he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. As we draw nearer to the great tribulation, there is peoples coming from the four corners of the earth to worship God. You and I are a part of that. God is going to turn the hearts of all the people to worship him. Verse 12 looks to the south and the Ethiopians. And you Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. There's no mention of the destruction of the land of Ethiopia, but certainly the, at that time in history, there was something that they were doing against the nation of Israel. And so God levels a judgment against them as well. And then... To the north, he will do, he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria. This is where Babylon is. This is a God saying, even though I'm going to use you as an instrument in my hands, there will be judgment against you as well. 
and make Nineveh a desolation. That's interesting. As dry as the wilderness, the herd shall lie down in her midst. Speaking of Nineveh, every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. The voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. All these palaces, Nineveh was a great city. We know the story from Jonah. The people of Nineveh repented for a time at Jonah's message that repentance did not stick. A revival broke out for a little while, but by that time, that generation was gone. Nineveh was back, flaying people and, and killing people. God is going to level judgment against them to the point that all of those famous or the well-known palaces and homes of Nineveh were going to be where chickens hung out, or pelicans, as it says there. That's where the fowl were going to dwell. There is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely that said in her heart, speaking of Nineveh, I am it, <laughs> and there's none beside me. <laughs> How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Nineveh was thought to be indestructible. It was a fortress of a city. They, they, they had protected it well enough that it couldn't be invaded. Or at least most people thought it couldn't be invaded. And God's like, I'll take care of that. You know what God did? He caused the Tigris River to rise its level and, and break its banks. And the water of the Tigris River ruined the foundations of the walls of the city. And they crumbled. And Babylon marched in. <clears throat> You thought you were indestructible, and it's just a little bit of water, and your your walls are your protection has become sand. The Babylonian army marched right in. That's the surrounding nations. Now God is going to look again in chapter three, coming back to Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. I like verse two. You and I can use verse two as a checklist in our lives to see how we are doing in our relationship with God. She has not obeyed his voice. Well, how are we in obeying the voice of God? I don't even hear the voice of God, you might say. Well, I'm sorry, you have close to 2,000 pages sitting in your lap of the voice of God. So how are we in regards to hearing and obeying the voice of God? She has not received correction. When we find that we've erred in our way, do we humbly receive correction and make things right? Are we humble enough to do that? She has not trusted in the Lord. Are our hope... Is all of our hope in him, or is some of our hope in our reserves? Is some of our hope in our own strength? Is some of our hope in our ability to make resolution or make to solve an issue? Or do we trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding? And the fourth thing there in verse 2, she has not drawn near to her God. Do we turn to him? Are we drawing ourselves unto him? Are we seeking him out day by day? I think it's, is it Snapchat that has the streaks? 
I don't know how many of you guys are on Snapchat or whatever, but they have this incentive program to get on their app where they, if you snap pictures to your friends in consecutive days, they keep track of your streaks for you to let you know, hey, you're doing well. You've been a part of the app every day for 7, 10, 12, 14, 20, 118 days, whatever it is. The kids like it. I mean, KK does it. You know, she, she, she's involved in the streets. She's keeping them going with her friends and whatever. But I don't know if you're familiar with version or not, but they've actually started doing it as well. When you launch the version app, it says, hey, you've connected with God's Word for six days. You've connected with God's Word for 112 days or whatever. And so it's an incentive, I guess, to go, okay, uh, you know, and I've fallen into it to go, okay, hey, I've made it. I think, I, I think I'm at 118 days or something like that since they started the streaks that I've opened the app. But then I fall into this trap of saying, well, I, I need to launch the app even though I'm not, I don't have time to read the word right now just to keep my streak going. You know, there's danger in that as well. I don't know where I was going with that. But, I thank you. <laughs> I realized about halfway through, I'm like, I have no idea what my point is in this. She is not drawn near to her God. That was the idea. Do we turn to him? Are we consistently seeking him out? Verse 3, speaking of Jerusalem, her princes are in her midst, or her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. They're ravenous. The political leaders are a mess, is what verse 3 says. Verse 4, her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. So not only the political leaders are a mess, the spiritual leaders are a mess as well. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. One of the characteristics, the attributes of God that you and I need to keep on the forefront of our mind is that God is just. He cannot look upon sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug. He does not excuse sin. Sin must be paid for. So it's either paid for by you, or it's paid for in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so while verse 5 tells us that his every morning brings his justice to light, we also know from the scriptures that every morning his mercies are new. And while, yes, judgment is coming, there is always the invitation to be protected from that judgment. I've cut off the nations, their fortresses are devastated, I have made their streets desolate with none passing by, their cities are destroyed, there is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me, you will receive instruction, so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? I'm going to get up early to sin. It's a big day. We got a lot of sinning to get in tomorrow, right? How was your weekend in Vegas? Didn't sleep a wink. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of sinning to get in. They were getting up early. 
God offers, surely they will fear me. But no, they rise up early to corrupt their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, says in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, <clears throat> until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. God, you're such a harsh God in the Old Testament, we hear people say. No, we see God offering uh, time and time again an opportunity for the people of God to come back to him. And they rise up early to do, to do evil instead. And so God levels his judgment. God's response to their folly is, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to level my indignation, all of my fierce anger. Verse 8 is interesting in that it's the only verse in the Old Testament that contains every Hebrew letter. Quick breath. Rocks jumped over the lazy dog, right? That's, so that's the English sentence that you and I have, that typing sentence to work out, touching every letter. Well, 3.8 is the only Old Testament verse that contains every Hebrew letter. And in that is a picture of complete judgment. God's completeness in judgment. Reading it again, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of my kingdoms, <clears throat> to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. After judgment is leveled, the restoration process begins, and he says, I will restore to the peoples a pure language. There's a day coming when the people will worship God with a pure language. I'm going to say it like this, John chapter 4. There's a day coming in which we will worship him in spirit and in truth. That we will give all of our heart to him. He says it like a pure language, and I, I don't know fully what that means. I've wondered, as we get to heaven, how are we going to understand each other? Uh, the, the different language barriers that have been created because of the Tower of Babel. And, and God's going to remove that in one way or another. We certainly see it on the day of Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit falls, everybody can understand one another. I think that might be the pure language that's spoken up here. God will give us a pure language. We, I mean, technology has gotten to the point where you can say a phrase into your phone and there is an app that will translate it into whatever language you want it to. Go a step farther. I don't know if you've seen this yet or not. There's an, actually an earpiece now that you can listen to someone speaking in a foreign language and it translates it in your ear. We have come very close to the Star Trek recorders, the, the trans, trans, what are they called? Universal yeah, Universal Translators, thank you. I'm so glad we have Trekkies in here. <laughs> <laughs> the Universal Translators, right, where the, the people could understand one another. We've come very close to that in technology, and God's like, that ain't nothing. When we get 
on the other side of my judgment, there'll be a pure language. Everybody will be able to understand one another as we worship our God. Verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. That people are going to come from far and wide. When Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem, Jerusalem will become the capital of the earth in the millennial reign. People will come from far and wide. It's interesting to note, and I, I think I got this from Joe Foch, in 1991 alone, and I know that's like 100 years ago, but in 1991 alone, 85,000 Ethiopian Jews returned to Jerusalem to live. 85,000 in 1991 alone. It's beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers shall come and they shall bring my offering. And some would think that that verse is a reference to the fact that some people think that the Ark of the Covenant is hidden somewhere in Ethiopia. I'm, uh, I don't know where I fall on all of that right now. I'm kind of sorting that out in my mind. If they shall bring my offering, some would think that maybe perhaps the Ethiopian people will be bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Um, some would refer that to that, but I was talking with a, my buddy Tim, who uh, worships or who is the pastor down on the east side, and he reminded me of Jeremiah three sixteen that says, you know, that when Christ comes, the Ark of the Covenant will be no more. He fulfills the mercy seat, and so uh, so I'm, I'm kind of wrestling and, and considering all those things. Either way. I think it's cool that Ethiopia is mentioned quite a bit in the book of Zephaniah because we've got to So I'm familiar with the Ethiopian culture. All right, let's finish it up. You guys with me? Yes. All right, a little longer. In that day, shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. You'll be forgiven. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. That's the best line right there. I mean, it's, it's all beautiful. In that day, when Christ rules and reigns from Jerusalem... There will be no one to make us afraid. We will not walk in fear any longer. Because his reign will be right and just. Sing, O daughter of Zion. <coughs> Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. I hope you recognize this. I think you do. We have a musical heritage. We need to sing as a people. That's we provide opportunity. God didn't give me a good voice. I don't care. The command is not sing if you sing well. The command is sing. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The person next to you is not going to laugh at you. If they do, I'll fix that. <laughs> <laughs> trying to temper my... They'll be picking up their teeth with a broke arm. <laughs> we have a musical heritage. Sing, O daughter of Zion. We come together to sing unto the Lord. 
The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. So what's going to be the lead story on the news then? Right? When Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, what's the news going to be like? You will see disaster no more. Today on the news, we're done. <laughs> we have nothing to report. There's nothing bad happened. Talk about a glorious picture. Maybe by then there'll be more, you know, good news. <laughs> In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. Let's not be, let our hands, you know, our shoulders slump over. Let's not be walking in distress. Don't be afraid. God is with us. And then 17, a beautiful verse. The Lord your God is in your midst. Just pause on that for a second. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one. As we sang, mighty to save today. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. How excited is God about saving you? Well, he sent his son to die for you. And he rejoices over you with singing. What a beautiful picture. The word, the phrase there, he will quiet you with his love. In the, in the King James Version, it says he will rest in his love. And I think of it this way. He loves us now. But he's not yet resting in his love for us. He's still pursuing. He's still working, chasing us. It's, it's like a, a parent who has a deployed soldier. They don't rest. Right? But a parent who has a, a soldier on foreign soil doesn't rest well because of their love until that soldier comes home. I think of uh, Jim and Yvette Brown, our friends over in Indiana, that their daughter left over this summer. I would imagine that Jim and Yvette have not had a good night's sleep since Casey left. You don't rest when your loved ones are on foreign soil. God's not resting yet, but in that day, he will. In that day, he loves us now, but we're still in enemy territory. So until that day, he, he will not rest. But in that day, he will rest. And he will rejoice over us with singing. The Lord sings over us. What's that like? What's the voice of the Lord like? What's, what, is it tenor? Baritone? Probably bass. In fact, I know he's a bass. Right? The bottom of a bass. Bobby Kaplan's got nothing. How do I know that? Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. <laughs> He's a base. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Tenors aren't powerful, sorry. I was a tenor for a lot of years. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon powerful voice. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. <clears throat> the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. 
the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. <laughs> and strips the forest bare, and his and in his temple everyone says, Glory. Everyone worships him. As we look up at the end of it, wow, we're going long, but that's alright. 18, 19, and 20. God is going to say, I will, six different times. I will. Okay? Verse 18. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom it is a reproach, or its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put back put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back. At, even at that time, I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Jesus, God is returning to the earth in order to deal once again with the nation of Israel as we await the, the, the great tribulation of God. It's in that tribulation period that God is dealing with his people again. For 2,000 years, there has been a culture of anti-Semitism. And in that day, it will be pro-Semitism. It will be, God's people will have their rightful place. That's how the book ends. To sum it up in one sentence, judgment is looming. Zephaniah, speaking of the Babylonian judgment that is coming, but also looking forward to the great day of the Lord. Judgment is coming, but God offers to hide us from that day by giving, his, giving us his mercy through Jesus. He has extended an invitation for protection from the day of judgment that is coming in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The book is F and I in 45 minutes-ish. Ish. Let's stay and let's close it for We'll head into 1 John next week if you guys want to read it. <coughs> Go through the uh, three epistles of John. God, we thank you and praise you for the day, and we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. What a glorious thought that there is a day coming in which, yes, you're going to level judgment, but you're in that you're setting the wrong right. And prior to that, you've given us an invitation, protecting us as long as we've accepted what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. I pray for anybody that's hearing my voice that doesn't yet understand that, that you have made a way that they might be saved. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them that they wouldn't wait any longer because judgment is looming and tomorrow may be too late. I pray that we place our faith in you and I pray that we would seek you wholeheartedly, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, both now and forevermore. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.